Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. The other day I was perusing Instagram and I saw a post uh, from Jonathan Bradshaw, who is a a veterinarian specializing, uh, I believe, in like sporting dog care, uh, retrievers and whatnot here in central Arkansas. I saw a post where he said that uh, he was hunting or spending some time in the woods uh, that day with uh, Connor Gabbett who is someone I was familiar with uh, from some of his work with Sitka, uh, a short film Sitka just put out about him, uh, and some of his photography online. Uh, I knew he was a a former chef that had started hunting as an adult and kind of, you know, in some ways went down a similar path that I did uh, as far as really immersing themselves in hunting and uh, the hunt and the food connection and the storytelling to people and whatnot. Uh, And so I reached out to... A buddy of mine at uh, Sitka and got Connor's phone number and we texted back and forth for a few days. And so as of recording this, uh, this is Sunday, uh, December 18th. Yeah, Sunday, December 18th. My kid was due on the 12th and still not here yet. He's hanging out. And Marianne does not want me going very far from the house, uh, you know, understandably because it's kind of a any moment now sort of deal. So I was actually able to arrange Connor the night before he had to fly back to Vancouver, Canada, or Vancouver, British Columbia, sorry. I was able to get him over here. He took a lift over here from his hotel. Uh, I just made a bunch of duck tamales, which were, ah, they were, man, they were good. I'm, that's a thing I'm going to really start delving into is these tamales because it's such a fantastic way to use up like the bits and pieces of wild game but uh he came over we had a nice meal ate some duck tamales and then had a really rad conversation and it was a it was a cool hangout uh man this dude's really interesting he's living this really cool life he's kind of traveling around going to some of the most beautiful places on earth uh and then we talk about it later in the in the podcast as well but he's even uh, fixing a move onto a sailboat. So lots of cool stuff to talk about, uh, wild game, photography, uh, world travel, adventuring, all that stuff, uh, in this conversation with Connor Gabbard. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. I am here in my home office, and I'm, uh, we've got an international episode today. I'm joined uh, by one Connor Abbott of Vancouver, British Columbia. That's, uh, that's on the western side of our neighbor to the north. I know that because I'm looking at a map here and exposing how ignorant I am about Canadian geography. But uh, so Connor is, are you a, are you a sick or ambassador or just a photographer how do you 
What's your affiliation with Sitka? Uh, well, uh, first, sorry, last name's Gabbett with a wait, G. Wait, wait, wait. I said Gabbett? I said Abbott. Didn't I think you said Abbott, yeah. All good. Gabbett. Yeah. My bad. No worries, dude. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I know you because your pictures pop up on Sitka stuff, and then Sitka just did this uh, cool film about you. But yeah, so what's your affiliation with Sitka, and then we'll talk about all the other stuff you do. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, so uh, first and foremost, definitely a photographer and videographer. Um, and then slowly over the years, I've just kind of become more affiliated with Sitka and, um, yeah, I had a chance to shoot a couple hunts for them and, uh, done a bit of cooking content, stuff like that, written some articles. And then, uh, yeah, obviously we did that, that film just about hunting off the West coast there for, for deer. So yeah, I, I don't know if I'm an official ambassador. I wouldn't say that, but, uh, yeah, affiliated. Yeah. Your name pops up. At, there's, there's a lot of times, uh, on photos on Instagram, it'll say, mm-hmm. it'll have your Instagram handle, handle there. Yeah. Uh, and so we were just talking about it. You, me, and Marianne just had dinner here at the house. Uh, Great dinner, by the way. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, and we were talking, you said, you know, that you were cooking professionally for 20 years, right? So That's right. what, like, did you kind of start in high school? <clears throat> yeah, basically, I started when I was 15. Um, if you want to, if you want, like, the, the real story about how I got into it, um, went to uh, my grandfather's birthday dinner and there was like 10 family members there or something like that at a local restaurant and uh i'm 15 at the time he looks around and he leans over next to me and he's like hey he's like there's a lot of a lot of good looking women working here and i looked around and i was like you know what grandpa you're right there is he's like you should work here and so i went back the next day and uh applied for a job and i didn't know what i was applying for no clue and so they uh yeah they threw me in the kitchen and just kind of fell in love with it and rolled with it so did it for 20 years Man, that's about when I started working in restaurants uh, and just, you know, like bottom floor, like, you know, busting tables and washing dishes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I remember being incredibly disappointed that first restaurant I worked at and I like, uh, you know, I I had this idea of what like a commercial kitchen looked like and then it's like soup and bag and shit, you know. Oh, yeah. It, it, you know, it was like popcorn shrimp at the happy hour. It was just <laughs> darkness. <laughs> Uh, burst that bubble pretty quick it did man uh you know man cooking's like like a lot of stuff that uh, when it's for mass consumption you know it's it's pretty low brow Mm -hmm. Uh, and but you can get into some niches uh or just kind of like specialization or just really giving a shit about how you do something and and really kind of uh you know, there's like a transmogrification kind of that, that can happen, right? Like this in this human experience where your your idea and your intent and and how you see the world is being communicated to somebody else and then they have their interpretation of it and all that. Uh or it can be soup and bags, you know. Um, <laughs> I'll take the former. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I I think so too. I mean, it, it can't be that all the time. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's got to be peanut butter and jelly. But yeah, sometimes you just got to fill the stomach. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but and and I'm not even talking about microgreens and foam and, and that was never my forte. Uh, but I think just like giving a shit, you know, uh, caring, uh, taking, you know, just taking. The, sometimes shortcuts are cool, and sometimes. You're cheating yourself out of something when you when you engage in it, right? Mm, yep. Uh, it's it's just like it's different to cut stuff with a chef's knife than it is 
to have one of those little rompo peel choppers. <laughs> sure, it sure is a slap chop or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad loved that, like making tuna fish salad. He's like, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. We used to have one in one of the professional kitchens. It works great for chopping nuts. Yeah. Like there's no better way to do it. Keeps them all contained and slap away and you're done. Or like a... Have you ever used those... It's just like a... Looks like a garlic press, but it's for eggs, slicing eggs. Oh yeah, yeah. To like to dice it up, basically. Yeah, man. That's. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a perfect. Or, or, or the thing. little slice one. Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, man. So. I mean, you, you're you're living a super interesting life, and so this podcast is about people who have, uh, the, like, the catchphrase on it is people who have, uh, like, found a way to combine you know thoughtful introspection and then the, the physicality of working with their hands and mm. uh and, and and made a way for themselves in the world right so the many spheres where you're doing that uh i mean maybe most provocatively right now you're talking about you're doing a lot of these like once in a lifetime hunts or stuff that would be like big once in a lifetime hunts for folks and you're documenting this for people so we're talking about uh like sheep, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, a lot of sheep hunts. And so, I mean, specifically, we say sheep, but like, what does that mean? Uh, so the majority of them, I mean, they're they're uh, uh, North American mountain sheep. So you're chasing, you know, bighorn sheep, desert sheep, like all, all the different subspecies or, or different species. So doll sheep, uh, stone sheep, and, uh, you know, California bighorns and Rocky Mountain bighorns, stuff like that. Um and then I've done a little bit of stuff internationally, not so much for sheep, more for goats, like Ibex and stuff in mm -hmm. Central Central Asia. But uh, yeah, I do a lot of sheep hunting. And uh, if you're in Central Asia, I mean, that's like in the the stands, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I've been to Tajikistan a couple of times for... Marco Polos and stuff? Uh, we saw some Marco Polos, never hunted them. We were hunting Ibex. And okay. then I uh, went last year and a bit of a boondoggle, but uh, we were... I was supposed to meet up with a guy and we were supposed to hunt Markor, which is a, a pretty cool animal. But uh, yeah, flights got really messed up and never quite made it in time for the hunt. So And so and you're on these hunts like as a private documentarian, right? Yep. Yeah. So for most of them, I mean, these are these are guys who are just, you know, crazy for sheep, basically. And they're out there uh, or, or any kind of animal that they're chasing. But a lot of times it's sheep and um, they're looking to basically capture the memories, right? Um, a lot of times we're in spaces, or sorry, places that are just you know unbelievable jaw dropping that not a lot of people get to see. Um, their family usually isn't there with them, and so they want to be able to take something back and share kind of what that experience is, what it means to them, the the work that they put in to, to do it. Um, share that with people back home, friends, family, coworkers, that kind of thing. Uh and you're doing that both with still photography and then videography? Correct. Yeah. So uh, I'll run a couple of cameras, and yeah, I try to do it all. I'd say I do it all very averagely um, because you're kind of swapping back and forth between mediums, but yeah, keeps you on your toes. <laughs> uh, what, I mean, what's your standard, what, what's your standard client look like for something like that? Is that someone who's, are you doing like governor's tags and stuff like that? Or are these just, I mean like, so everyone knows that these are, uh, these are high dollar hunts, right? Like these are limited access, a lot of places you could put in your entire life for a tag and not get a tag. So a lot of times the way to get access to that is, you know, just through dollar bills, right? Correct. So uh, what do you feel like the the motivation for a lot of folks to do that is? I mean, because that's, that's almost out of, like, my realm of understanding, mm. right? Like, it's so foreign to what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I would like to 
tag along like to see it, you know? Yeah. Uh, see if I die at 10,000 feet, you know, just trying to <laughs> climb up there. But like, I mean, I don't know, man. Can you kind of describe what one of those hunts is like and just like the feel of it and all that? Yeah. I mean, uh, so to answer your question, yeah, I've, I've done uh, a governor's tag hunt uh, before. Um, and then, uh, but most of my stuff, it's with guide outfitters in, you know, British Columbia, uh, Northwest Territories, Yukon, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, down in, in Mexico too, a little bit. But um, yeah, essentially, you know, any of these hunts, especially in Canada, uh, and in Mexico, I mean, these are all guided hunts, right? No one's really able to put in the time needed to get to know the areas, to find the the, the public areas or to find a, a ranch to hunt on, something like that. So um, the reliance comes down to yours or you are relying on your guide and your outfitter. So um, everything's kind of organized through them. In terms of prep leading up to it, there's not much really that um, the hunter has to take on. I mean, they show up with their gear, um, you know, and their, their gun or their bow dialed in. And, uh, it's always nice to have a, uh, a good baseline of fitness. Cause you know, any sheep hunt can be quite challenging mm-hmm. in that kind of country. But, um, yeah, usually there's a way to get it done no matter what kind of shape you're in, Yeah, uh, which, which is good and handy, but, uh, yeah. And then basically you're showing up and, and the, you know, in, in BC specifically, you have to have uh, a guide outfitter take you out there for certain species, basically all big game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're flying to the airport, usually somewhere up north, uh, kind of in a, a smaller uh, remote airport. And a uh, guide outfitter picks you up out there, take you to the base camp. You get dialed in, go through your gear, make sure you you got everything you need. Uh, shoot the gun, make sure the gun didn't get bumped around when you're traveling. And then after that, you you know, usually you get flown out and dropped off out in country somewhere, um, with a guide who's already out there, you know, ready and waiting for you kind of thing. Who's been like living out there, keeping (laughs) an eye on these critters and figuring out where they are and, oh, that one might be old enough or whatever. Yep. It depends outfit to outfit, how much time they have to pre-scout the areas. Um, usually these guides are going in depending on where you are Northern BC, maybe July 15th or so. And they'd go in on maybe jet boat, or horseback and lead a string of ponies in there, mm-hmm. or uh, they might just get dropped off by plane. And then, yeah, they're basically setting up their, um, setting up where they're going to hunt and, and kind of get dialed in and maybe cut some trails, stuff like that, if they're on horses. Um, and then in Northern BC specifically, uh, all the hunts are going to start or sheep's going to start on August 1st. And then caribou is like two weeks after that. So, uh, yeah, they don't have a ton of time to pre scout, but because of the remoteness of the areas and, um, you know, there's not a ton of resident pressure cause some of these areas are quite hard to get to. Um, you know, and sheep don't move around too much. They have some, some favorite mountains and stuff like that. And ranges, a lot of these outfits, they've been up there operating for 20 years. They kind of have a rough idea of where most of the sheep are. So it's not like you got to go in every single year and, and refine the sheep and, and kind of start from scratch. So you got a baseline to work with. Man. And there's, there's many other things I want to get to in this conversation, but uh, like sheep are something that people get like fanatical about, right? Oh yeah. Like there's sheep show, uh, which is like this kind of big industry thing. Uh, there's, there's tons of money invested in the hunts and the, the conservation of the animals and, uh, management, you know, moving different animals around, uh, adjust populations and, uh, and whatnot. What? And, and so you've probably gotten to see, I mean, you've probably gotten to see like way more sheep than like 
you know, the average sheep hunter, right? Like, are you, are you do you feel like you're kind of approaching, like, you, you've seen a ton, right? Like, guides see a ton, but, like, yep. a person might see for three days or a week or however long, that might be the only time they're out there. Yeah. What... What do you think is so captivating about them? Like, what is, is it the remoteness of the land? Is it the actual animal? Is it the the stature of the, the whole thing? What do you think is, is so alluring? Yeah, I, uh, I think there's probably a couple of things. I think definitely appearance-wise, they are quite a striking animal, right? To see a, a full-grown, mature, you know, 12-year-old ram stand on the top of the mountain, like that's a, it's quite the sight. And I think... Because of where they live, they're associated with generally like quite wild places, um, especially in, in Canada where, you know, access can be a little bit harder than I think some places down in the States. I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's not super common to see these animals for the everyday person. So there's something, um, for me anyways, there's something uh, that I correlate between wild sheep and wild places. And so uh, I know that if I'm sheep hunting and I see sheep, I'm in some badass place. And so I think that draws in a lot of people. And then, um, you know, again, I think it's just that, uh, it's that visual appearance of the animal. Like they're so striking, right? Those big twisty horns. And when you see that, you know, just a massive 40 inch Ram that kind of curls out at the end and flares out, they just, they look badass. So I I think that's kind of what draws people in. And then there's also just the physical challenge or, or, and the mental challenge, I guess, that comes with hunting sheep. I mean, they live in these big mountains, wild places. It's not easy to get to. Um, and you, you got to climb. Like, you, you almost always have to climb. There's a couple places where, you know, you can find them down the rivers and stuff like that, down in, in Washington and Oregon. But uh, up in northern BC, I mean, they're, they're at the top of the mountain usually. So um, I think there's a, a huge aspect where it's... Uh, you know, it's an extremely demanding hunt physically and mentally. And I think people are drawn to that. What sort of elevations are you dealing with? In BC, it's not that bad. I mean, we'd be, you can find them down lower in certain parts for different species, but, um, for the stone sheep up North, you'd be man, anywhere from maybe 5,000 to 8,000 feet, something like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not that high elevation. Like, uh, you know, we're not usually suffering from any sort of, uh, uh, issues with elevation. It's more just the physical challenge of just, you know, huffing yourself up the mountain, right? P- putting that boot leather to work and, and getting up the mountain. Yeah, man. Last January when I did this uh, late season elk hunt with Jay Byer, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that was my deal, dude. Like, I got my ass kicked, right? Like, the elevation didn't help, but it was also, like, Deep soil, snow, sorry, you were like post-holing the whole time. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, little suck it out of you. 8,000 feet. Like, I've spent my entire life at sea level. Yeah. I live in St. Louis. I've lived here, man, within a couple hundred feet of sea level. Yeah. I was, <laughs> the first time we went out there, I went up this little tiny, it felt like a mountain to me, man. And, you know, then <laughs> three days later, I looked, I was like, oh, my God. And I was like, I don't know if I can do it, man. <laughs> this is killing me. Uh, How much better did you feel after three days, though? Uh, yeah, by like, by the third day I was, I mean, like I would still get tired, yep. you know, like if we climbed up real high, of course. uh, but yeah, like my head wasn't spinning. I didn't feel like nauseous all yeah. the time. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how much like between the first day and the third day, that's kind of when I, and I would say most guys, you just start to feel better. 
just even from a physical exertion standpoint, right? If you're not used to hiking mountains all day, mm -hmm. it takes a couple of days to get into it. Muscles kind of loosen up a bit and then you, you start to feel a lot better. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we're sitting here in the office and like before we started, I pulled up this map of like North America, right? Again, because I was realized I had no idea really where uh, Vancouver was. Uh, I'm... <laughs> I am struck by how enormous Canada is, man. <laughs> I don't think that it, you know, and I bet it's because, you know, the United States, every, in the United States, the United States is central to everything. Right. right. Like if you even look at maps and globes and stuff, like it's disproportionately sized and whatnot. Right. I mean, this is a massive, massive country. Yep. Uh, how does that, how does that work in Canada? So. You got so I'm looking at it, right? You've got the Northwest Territories, you've got none of it, which is, I mean, is that that's like a that's way up north. That's like indigenous folks up there, right? Uh, it can be a lot, yeah, for sure. Uh, and yeah, it's it's definitely way up north. And then you got British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, which is like you hear a lot about Saskatchewan with uh, with waterfowling, uh, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. Is this, how does this, like as a Canadian, how does that, uh, do you identify, do you feel like people identify as an Albertan before Canadian or a Canadian? Like everyone's kind of in it together and then you've got these, uh, these, uh, area distinctions. Uh, I think, I think we all kind of identify as Canadians, uh, first and foremost, but because of the size of the country and like the geographical spread of it, um, there is definitely cultural distinctions between every province, right? Like an Albertan and, and, uh, someone from BC, like, yeah, definitely probably different people a little bit. Uh, and then, yeah, same thing goes for, for any other province. And, you know, the further East you go, that the more different it is from, from BC. So, um, I, I think the one thing about Canada though, that, that is in, always interesting to me is like, you can sometimes see, um, these satellite images that are generated that basically look at that exact map that you're looking at there, which encompasses, you know, United States and Canada, basically all in one, one frame. And, uh, they'll do like these, these night shots and they're looking at basically where all the lights are mm -hmm. and the lights would just be a good indication of like population distribution. Sure. And I, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but it's something crazy. Like 90% of the population of Canada lives within like a hundred kilometers of the border. Of that 49th really? parallel. Yeah. So when you see this map um, with, you know, all these lights on and all the cities and stuff like that, like, you know, just a, a little sliver down by that border is all kind of lit up. Um, that's where a lot of, you know, cities and towns are and stuff like that. And then you go north and it, it's quite dark, you know, so. So if you're, at, if you're in the middle of any of these, north to south middle of any of these provinces, like you're in the boonies. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know about boonies. There's definitely some big towns in there. You know, you got Edmonton and stuff like that that's uh, that's relatively central. But uh, for sure, like the general populace tends to live very close to the border. A lot, lot of wild country out there. Yeah, man. Dude, <laughs> just, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just looking at it. I was like, dude, the possibilities, man. Like you probably could get in there and you're walking on stuff that another person hasn't walked on in a long, 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 long time. That thought crosses my mind all the time. Yeah. Especially when you're up north in, in sheep or goat country. I mean, you're, you're, you know, crawling along a ridge line that just feels like no one's been there in forever. So yeah, it's a cool feeling. What's the, uh, 
What's the availability of like relics from first peoples? Like, are you guys finding projectile points and stuff when you're out there? You know what? Probably it's always been there. It's probably always been like few and far between with people up at the top of these mountains, right? I mean, I would imagine so. I don't think a lot of um, First Nations. That, so that's a term that, that we use in Canada for uh, Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's a lot of traditional um, First Nations communities that were based like up on the top of mountains that I know of. Anyways, I could be wrong on that, but uh, you know, they do have a history of hunting the same species that we hunt now. So they were up there hunting mountain goats and sheep and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it still feels like you're walking on ground that, that feels, you know, very undisturbed and like raw and like primal. Yeah. And, and, you know, like whatever it is that is drawing you to that place, like the stuff you're feeling when you're, when you're up top and you're like looking over it, that's the same shit that 10,000 years ago. Totally. Some dude that was like wearing caribou skins was thinking the same stuff. I've totally. I've climbed up on top of big rocks and stuff just here in like the Wachita's and the Ozarks. And like the whole reason to do it was because it was this big thing to climb, mm. you know? And yep. like that's a very human instinct. Like I just want to get up top and see what's over there. Or how far could I see if I could get up on top of this little, this limestone jut out, right? Yep. Uh yeah, it's, it's almost that challenge thing, right? Like, can I do it? Can I get up there maybe? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's less of – it's not as much of, like, me challenging myself as just, like, that wonder. Like, you know, what is up there? Mm. Like, how can pers- – a perspective, you know what I mean? This, like, metaphorically as, as well as, like, tangibly. Like, how can perspective be changed or altered by yes. by seeing it from this perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so man, let's step back to to, to that Sitka film. So, uh, who man, who did that? Who who did like most of the filming for that? Was that Heinz or? Uh, no, so that was a studio. Um, it's called uh, um, by Marion Films, uh, and so they're based out of California. Great group, of, sorry, great group of guys. Um, and so they came up and they spent oh, what do we spend like five days out there or something like that. Um, really, really enjoyed working with them. Shout out to those guys. They were awesome. Tons of fun. Um, and then we had really a, well done, man. I, super very well watchable. Like, and it's, it's only eight minutes long, man, but it, uh, which sometimes can seem not long enough and sometimes can seem like people are shoving too much stuff into that space. Yeah. And it, uh, it just the pacing of it, it breathes really well. Awesome. Yeah. No, they, they did a phenomenal job. They, they were really, really good. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know. It, it, it was fun. It was super, super fun to make. I mean, to be able to talk about kind of like what drives you and your passions and stuff like that and and uh, to share that with however many people might have watched was, was awesome. Uh, man, what I was struck by when I was listening to that is, I mean, obviously we're coming from different places and uh, I mean, I mean, some similarities, right? Like worked in food for a long time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Got to about mid thirties and then was like, uh, <laughs> let's do some, let's make hunting like the primary focus of our professional life. Right. Oh. Uh, but the way you're describing it, right. Which is, it's a way that people talk about hunting and food. It's like the people that I like that hunt talk about it that way. Right. Mm. Uh, and I haven't said this on the podcast in a long time. I, there was a while where I was talking about things being too precious, right? Uh, 
sometimes I think like there's a little too much moral hand wringing when we're when we're trying to make uh, the pursuits palatable yep. towards people that don't have a, a first person connection to it, right? Yeah. Uh, and like sometimes I think the word harvest gets overused, uh, and I get why we do it, but you know I don't I. I think if it's not done gratuitously, I don't think think saying kill is is wrong, right? Uh, there, there's a way to do it that's dirty and feels gross, yeah. and there's a way to do it that's uh, very pragmatic. You know, like you've 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 taken this life, you've killed yep. to provide for yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a very accurate term to use. Yeah, right? I mean, that's what you're doing, right? Yeah. Uh, and and a lot of the times, I don't feel the need to to dress it up, but Anyway, man, I'm I'm rambling here. Man, the way you're describing your connection with food and why why it was important to you, I said, man, I, I like I get it. Like I I've said stuff like that a million times before, right? Yeah. Uh, it's and the stuff you were cooking on that, right? Like, mm, yeah, it was, that was fun. I mean, it, it's stuff that could stretch somebody a little bit, but it was still all very accessible, right? Like yeah. you, had, you had like a like a beautiful tartare preparation, right? Yep. Uh, was there caviar on top of that? Uh, it wasn't. No, it was just black sesame seeds. Okay. Okay. So okay. Ju- just to make it look cool. No, it looked cool, man. Like yeah. you molded it up in a disc, man. That looked real neat. Yeah. And I feel like uh, tartars and stuff are getting a little more on trend right now. Like it seems like, especially people that are that are hunting ungulates. Yeah. Seem like they're they're getting down with it more. I like hearing that, man. That's awesome. I don't have a ton of friends who, who do the tartar thing really wild game, to be honest. Yeah. It's man. I mean, frankly, it's not, it's not going to be my first choice. Uh, (laughs) and it's not because it's unpalatable, man. I, it, I'll tell you what I don't, uh, I'm real big on like contrasting textures. Mm. And I think if it was paired more often with something that, had like a little bit more robustness, right? Like some crunch. Yep. Uh, I think I'd be more into it. But, yep. uh, but anyway, then you did like a yakitori, right? There's like these skewered hearts. Yep. Venison and you, hearts. And you were talking about how you love heart. Yeah. One uh, of my favorites. What do you think about it texturally, man? Like, you know, it's kind of got a cool little spring back. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean that, uh, that cardiac muscle, although it is a muscle, it, it has a different makeup than, every other, um, you know, movement muscle, right. Yeah. In an animal. And so that's reflected in the, the, the texture and the grain, especially. And like you say, just kind of like that, that springiness to it. Um, I love it. I just think, I think it's fantastic. I think it's fascinating to me that, um, okay. So say you take like a shank, right. And you, or sorry, let me back up and say like, you, you look at different cuts of an animal and traditionally the cuts that are worked more on the animal are going to be the tougher cuts. Right. Um, and then the, the, the least used, like the tenderloins and stuff are going to be much more tender. Mm-hmm. But the thing that fascinates me about the heart is that this, this heart's pumping, you know, 24 seven, obviously. And, uh, yet it's provides like extremely tender meat. Like if you cut it properly against the grain, I find that to be, I mean, very, very supple meat, right. And the way that that grain is, and it's so fine. It's, um, yeah. When you, when the cleaned up, I think it's one of the best eaten, uh, muscles on the entire animal. Uh, do you get into any of like the metaphysical stuff, like with the, 
this being like such a primal central part of this animal and absorbing any of it? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't really. I mean, when I, uh, when I take an animal, it's, it's still an animal until I basically get the hide off. And then for me, like something in my brain switches. It changes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it changes. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's like, I'm just back in the restaurant with a, a whole lamb basically on the table. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to me, it looks exactly the same. So right away, as soon as that hide comes off, it switches for me and it turns into, um, you know, what cuts am I going to pull off? And you pull something off. You're like, Oh, that's awesome. Like I haven't had this cut in a while. I'm going to make like so-and-so and you kind of like mentally make note of that. And you, as you're processing. So yeah, for me, no, I, I, I never can't say I got into like the metaphysical. I'm also not a super deep thinker either. So for me, it's just kind of meat. Uh, man, I mean, maybe, but I mean, you, you've got to, right? Like if you're putting all this effort into, into photography, right. And videography, right. And the editing and the, you know, the interpretation, your interpretation of it, or what's that other term you could, uh, interpolation mm-hmm. right like that's probably fair to say is being referenced when you're probably even more so when you're cooking right uh i mean you got to be thinking about stuff right or so it wouldn't be any good right you, like you, you've got to be there's got to be some examination some self-examination of it on some level or else it uh it, it doesn't it, it doesn't translate it in the realm of storytelling the way that seems important to you yeah yeah, that's that's very fair. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's like a depth to to hunting, right? Like in terms of uh, uh, something like to me, it feels more like real than most things I do in my life. Um, especially like the backcountry hunts, like there's something about it. So I, I guess on that level, yeah, but just not when it comes to um, like the meat itself. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. No, that that makes sense, man. Yeah. Uh, I like keeping the hearts. I mean, to some degree, I like keeping it uh, to expose other people to it, right? Totally. Like, like it's a it's a neat thing to. I mean, saying there's there's a bear heart in this burgoo or this stew or something, right? Like, yeah. I, don't, I mean, novelty seems like it cheapens it too much, but it, there there's a uh, there's a a point of interest. A point of interest, yes. Right. Yeah, and there, there's something to be talked about there that I think is pretty cool. Sure. Um, so when I worked in the restaurant industry, my last job before I um, left that was uh, as a product development chef. So I worked for a, um, a company we had about at the time, maybe I think 35 or 36 stores across the country and a couple down in the States. And uh, I was in charge of one of the concepts and um, I was responsible for creating the menu for the, that concept. And so um, it was a super cool job from a chef standpoint because here I, well, A, I work like Monday to Friday, nine to five, which is pretty unusual, yeah, yeah. but, um, it just afforded you the space and time to, um, really like kind of dig into like the food science and like the way that we eat that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as like look at ingredients on like a, a, a very, um, you know, just a, a super deep level compared to what you would do if you were like working every single day, running a restaurant, feeding people, you know, on mass. So, uh, we did burgers and I, I think I spent about a month and a half working on just developing a burger for this restaurant. And so we got to try, man, I, I must've brought in 20 different pre-mix ground chubs is what they're called. These like five, five pound chubs and, uh, you know, tr- trying all these different mixes of burger. And the one in a blind taste test that everybody hands down liked the best had something like 15% ground heart 
in there. Really? Yes, because uh, the flavor was just like not overpowering. I, I guess it would just be like a very um, beefy flavor. Like it just tasted more like beef than any other mix there when it's eaten in that burger with, you know, 20% fat or whatever it was. So I thought that was always fascinating, but we never put it on the menu with that mix anyways, because, uh, we just, you know, from, a um, from a standpoint of just like how that appeared on the menu, like if anybody ever found out that we have heart and we didn't say it, I think a lot of people would have gotten freaked out. Yeah. 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 But uh, I love that everybody chose that as their that favorite. Make, that totally makes sense though, man. It's like, uh, you know, I, like the American palate is, so based around corn in so many ways, right? Like mm. the critters eat corn, right? Uh, or soybean, right? And, yep. And a uh, mechanized version of it, right? So there, there is a uniformity. I'm going to say uniformity instead of blandness, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think the stuff that people react to a lot flavor-wise, like there is this, there is this element of like funk to it, right? Like I think as human beings, we're we do have a natural inclination to just like a little bit of funk, right? Mm. It's like a, a waterfowl breast skin on seared nicely. Right. Yeah. Uh, it tastes like a great beef steak, which is like a hint of funk that just keeps it interesting. Yep. Uh, and, and maybe funk is the, the wrong, uh, word to use, but it's like the same thing with cheese. Like you can get that, that plastic cheese, right. Or you can get something with just a little bit of age to it, a yep. little bit of, lived inness to it yep uh it's it's almost like a, like a terroir yeah totally you know it's this idea that uh um the idea that these animals that were were killing and were eating out there that they are like a, a representation of the land that they live on right and so there's a ton of diversity in that right even just from from a deer that lives you know you could kill two deer um you know 50 kilometers apart or, or, you know, 25 miles apart kind of thing. And they could taste very, very different based on what they're eating. One's in that, in, in an ag field, the other's eating wildflowers in the Alpine and it's, they, you know, they're totally different. So, um, yeah, th- there's definitely something like wild about it. I, this probably isn't true, but in my own mind, I like to tell myself that people are, when you talk about like people are, are drawn to, and they like that funk or that terroir, mm-hmm. I like to think that it's because, you know, we all have that bit of like, um, uh, that bit of like primal within us that, that, uh, is looking for like the best quality. Right. And it's like, you know, this is like the, the, the best fats, the, the highest protein that you can get in meat out there a lot of times. Um, and so I, I, I like to tell myself anyways, that people are drawn to it because that's what we used to eat for, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, and there's gotta be a reason that, you know, like these, these, these top shelf predators, like the first thing they're going towards on like a, on a big kill, right. Is like the viscera. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, getting that liver. And... Yeah. The wobbly bits. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, and, and now that's kind of in vogue with, have you, did you ever see that cat, the liver King? <laughs> yeah. That, I, I know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, man. Uh, yeah. well, but that whole like nose to tail type of eating thing is like superfoods. Yeah. Like that's always been a way of eating, right. Both through, uh, pragmatism, possibly through uh, lack of resources like poverty and stuff or whatever. Like people yep. are eating different parts, but now it's, uh, you know, now it's like uh, the new super protein shake or something, right? <laughs> totally. Uh, I, 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 
I am not drawn to eating raw ungulate liver. Uh, it, I eat, I eat a lot of bird livers. Yeah, like a ton. But man, an ungulate liver is assertive in a way that is <laughs> assertive. <laughs> That's a good way. It's, I mean, it's, it's difficult, man. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, my buddy buyer though, he, uh, he does, I forget the, the ratio is maybe it's like one pound of liver to eight pounds of ground. Yeah. And he just grinds it up and does oh. like this liver grind and still gets all the health benefits out of it. Yeah. Know? That'd be great. Yeah. How do you do your duck livers? Uh, so honestly, most of the time I'm eating them like minced up in some sort of sauteed like yep. mixed preparation. Uh, occasionally like some sort of spread, like do some pate or something, but not oh, yeah. usually. Usually it's like a dirty rice or uh, in, like I like them in gumbos and stews and stuff. Uh, occasionally as like a force meat, maybe in a, uh, get like a nice goose that's not shut up and you got like a good neck on it, you know, like do like a force meat sausage and, with the neck skin. Yes. Something like that. Yes. I've never yeah. done that, but I remember looking at a French cookbook like 15 years ago and I remember seeing that and I just thought that was the coolest thing. It's cool, man. And it's like, it's not hard yeah. really. Uh, and it's impressive. Like it's a kind of a cool little wow factor. Totally. I really like the fact that when you do it, like one end of the sausage is fatter than the other end of the sausage. <laughs> I, I just think it presents well. Because it's not like uh, it's not like uh, coming out of a food factory where everything's like exactly precise and even all the time, right? Well, it's like, no, just because it's skinnier by the head than it is down by the base. Totally, but right? like, but does it excite you because you know that you're not eating like like heavily processed, manipulated foods? Because it's like I'm using the neck. It's it's you know different. And, you know, different size on each end. And it's like, I mean, like, like for lack of a better term, like real food. Yeah. I mean, I think it, uh, I mean, if I'm being, if I'm being incredibly real, I think that if, you know, if I do that specific preparation, there is a little bit of a like, man, I'm a bad man. Like <laughs> most people are just breasting out their ducks, dude. And I'm, I'm like packing its neck skin with, you yeah. know, uh, stuff that people throw away. I think there is a little bit of that, but yeah, there's a, uh, man, I take a tremendous sense of pride in not throwing a lot away. Agreed. Right. Like I, I feel like it's, I'm trying to, I mean, whatever, everyone who listens to this podcast already probably knows how I feel. I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a higher order, right? Like I, I feel like it's a, it's a more it's a more right way of hunting and and processing animals and all that and right. uh, it's not about feeling superior to somebody. I just feel so much satisfaction like those tamales I made, like the fact that that was all just like I made stock and then I just picked the bits of meat off of it. Like I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction knowing that, you know, I got however many more meals out of this stuff that a lot of people don't see any value in. For sure, uh, and it's and it's also not like a. It's not a struggle meal, you know what I mean? It's, it's not it's not like craft macaroni and cheese and pickled <laughs> hot dogs like this is stuff that tastes good too, right? Yeah. Um have you done much yakitori before? No, not really. I mean like I've grilled up a lot of uh duck hearts like over a fire, but yeah. and just eating them like little meat marshmallows, but totally. Uh nothing 
nothing so standardized that I could call it yakitori. Gotcha. I, so one of the reasons that I cooked that that heart yakitori in that film was because I just bought this yakitori book. Um, I'll have to find the name of it. Uh, but it's, I mean, I find Japanese culture fascinating um, just with the degree of thought and skill and, uh, you know, the depth to which they chase a craft, right? And so here we're talking about simply like grilling chicken, which is traditionally what yakitori would be. But yet you flip through this book and, and I, I can't remember. It's something like there's 27 different cuts of chicken for 27 different types of yakitori. And each mm-hmm. one has like, usually they're using like uh, um, some similar sauces, but there's like different seasonings for each single one. Um, so I, you might get a kick out of it just because you're dealing with so many ducks. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's recipes for... Um, you know, wings, there's recipes for like, just like the Pope's nose, you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. like having like five Pope's noses on a little skewer and grilling them up. And they then, do uh, intestine stuff, right? Like they'll skewer the intestines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think they do gizzards and, and livers and hearts and yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. There's, man, I have, I have wondered about, I mean, cause I've cooked duck tongues before. I've oh, yeah. like, I've gone down and I have, I've never. I think even with that yakitori stuff, I think I've seen stuff where they're using a. Have you ever processed like a chicken and it had uh, underdeveloped eggs still inside of it? No, never. Yeah, that's wild, dude. But I've I think I've seen like yakitori where they're they're using those. Wow. Right. Uh, like yeah, they get down. That's on them, that's man. next level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ben, you want to talk about something with a little bit of funk to it? <laughs> uh, you ever eaten chitlins? Uh, I have. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah, I man. What, what would you what you think about it? Not for you. They, they're funky. Yeah, yeah I don't they, like they, them, dude. There's not many foods that like I can't do, to be honest. Um, but there's lots of foods that I like. Don't go back. Yeah, you like, more. But it's yeah. like it's not that I'm like put off by the food. It just like wasn't my flavor, you know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm put off by chitlins, man. And you know that's <laughs> like a thing I grew up with. Yeah. Uh, and it's man, it is, and you know I'm not exactly sure why because I spend so much of my time like with like inside, like my hands inside of animals, dude. But yeah. I think just I've got a, you know, childhood trauma informed predisposition <laughs> to not liking them chitlins, man. Uh, my mom used to make my, uh, my dad loved them, right? Yeah. My dad's is like old black dude. His parents are from Arkansas and Mississippi. And he just like, he grew up eating chitlins and yellow mustard, right? Yeah. And he loved that stuff. And my mom wouldn't let him cook them in the house because, I mean, Again, assertive, uh, odiferousness. Uh, so I just got this image of my dad outside in the snow when I was a kid. It's like snowing outside. My dad's all bundled up, and he's he's underneath my treehouse using the treehouse like to keep the snow off of him. He's got like a Weber grill out there with a little fire and this this little tiny uh, like single serving pot. Yeah, <laughs> just making like one order. One, one order. Yeah, <laughs> and then he like goes down in the basement and eats them with yellow mustard. Uh, that that's some food love right there, dude. Yeah, he was about it, man. That's, that's some dedication. He was about them chitlins, dude. <laughs> uh, and man, that's some chitlins are a deal. Like, man, you've got to clean them exceptionally well. Man. Yeah. Uh, but it's just gnarly, dude. Like, you know, you see your aunt like scraping the polyps off of them and stuff. Like, yep. That doesn't say Thanksgiving to me, but. <laughs> um, I had a pretty cool food experience uh, a couple of years back when I was in Tajikistan with a couple of guys and um they both just shot uh, ibex 
at the same time. And, and, uh, we were with two guides at the time and we were basically, I think we were exactly 14,000 feet. Um, and, uh, so we, we killed these two Ibex and we start processing and stuff like that. And, um, a couple of the, uh, kind of assistant guides or helpers came up with a couple of yaks to help us pack these Ibex off the mountain. And so as we're going, we shot them first thing in the morning. So we had all day to kind of process and it was a, a very cold, but nice day. And, uh, one of the guides pulls out, you know, guts, one of the animals, they save a bunch of stuff and they take, uh, he takes all the intestines and he basically just hands it to one of these young kids. Who's like, you know, 16, 17. And the kid turns around. His fitness is phenomenal. He runs all the way down this hill to this river and you see him just emptying out and just cleaning out, flips it inside out, cleans out mm-hmm. the entire intestine. And then literally just runs right back up the hill at 14,000 feet. It was impressive to watch. And then, uh, they made uh, basically kind of like a form of sausage right there on the hill. And we ate it within three, four hours of killing these really? objects. Yeah. So they're sitting there. I got a couple of cool pictures. And uh, they're just basically cutting, like almost ripping chunks of meat off. They got the knife in their, their hand and they would take a, another chunk of meat in their other hand and they would basically put their thumb and just pull that knife back to their thumb and just rip off these like irregular shaped pieces yeah, like of an meat. old lady cutting a potato or something. you got yeah. it yeah and uh and then they did the same thing with some back fat and then they uh they took that and they they used uh the largest part of the intestine diameter wise and they uh basically seasoned it up a little bit with some spices i don't really know what they were it was just more like a seasoning packet and then they stuffed it in there they tied them up and so they had a couple um you know kielbasa style maybe uh 12 inch long curled um stuffed sausages but with just with like diced meat and then they had a little stove up there they had a little pot they boiled them and they again they had some sort of like instant packet of like um you know beef broth or bouillon something like or something, that yeah. bouillon yeah that they put in there and uh yeah they laid out a laid out a little uh um tablecloth basically on the mountain there and they pulled these sausages out we didn't need any of the actual like uh casing but they just kind of cut it up into chunks and we would just like all pull out the chunks of meat and fat and uh you know have a little salt sprinkle it on there and you'd eat that with like five day old stale bread and wash it down with a cup of this uh this you know kind of simmering liquid it's fantastic like one of the cooler in-field cooking experiences I think I've had. That sounds really awesome, actually, man. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously you gotta you gotta understand uh, for people who don't know, like there's a, a process through which a, an animal would go into rigor mortis, and then um, you know it, it comes out. So usually it would take a, a day, maybe a day and a half before that kind of stuff wears off. Uh, but here they just did it right in the moment. So it wasn't the most tender meat, but man, it was freaking cool. Like really cool, especially sitting up there on those mountains, looking out at the, you know, 20,000 foot peaks and you're eating this Ibex that you just killed a couple hours before. That's a wild preparation too. So they're, they're not, so they're boiling it. They're not eating the, that casing was just a vessel yep. to cook it in. I'm sure it's infusing some sort of some oh, yeah. kind of funk in there. Yeah, right? for sure. Uh, some good assertive flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Assertive. <laughs> uh, and then is the fat like kind of rendering down? in there a little bit or is it, is it kind of a, it, it was rendering down. Yeah. And it would it, like, it would permeate out through that intestine. And so like on that, you know, we each got maybe uh, three ounces of that, that super salty, very like beefy broth. And it had a little, just a little bit of animal fat on the top, right? A little bit of oil. It was delicious. And so you're just kind of like sipping that, like a little bit of a, like a soup shooter. Yeah. And then exactly. And yeah. then eating the meat, huh? Yeah. That's neat, man. It was great. Have you ever tried to recreate anything like it? Uh, I, I do definitely uh, love to cook in the field. Um, I think there's something really cool about cooking 
an animal in the place where you killed it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's pretty magical. And I think it also forces us to slow down. I think, especially when we're talking about big game, we go to these, these kind of really cool epic places. I think because life is so rushed, we're oftentimes we're rushing to the trailhead. We go back there, we kill an animal, we pack that thing right back out. We jump in our car and, or, you know, get on a plane Mm, and we fly mm, home mm. and it's like, we got to get back to life. And I, I think there's, uh, yeah, I just think there's some magic to staying out there and like existing, you know, almost kind of like with no purpose for a day, right? Like we're not chasing an animal anymore. You're just sitting there like taking it all in. So I like the fact that like cooking an animal in the place where you kill it forces you to slow down and appreciate that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it it lets the whole thing kind of wash over you a little bit more, man. Yes. That makes so much sense. Uh, Cause I would say that that is, as I've started to, I've just recently, you know, last few years started to get to travel to hunt. Uh, and that can, I've seen it both ways, right? Like where I've had time to, to hang and kick it and, you know, spend all day plucking birds and figuring out what we're going to cook and just, yeah, you know, get like a daytime buzz on drinking some beers or something. <laughs> just like let the whole thing kind of macerate. Uh, and then I've also been like, dude, I got to, I got to drive 20 hours. I got to go. get out of here, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess what, you know, I guess really, man, I'm not doing a ton of like in field cooking, which is something I need to, I need to augment. Mm. I need to do more of that. Uh, there's like a, um, I call it like a, like a rusticity to it. Like mm-hmm. there's like a rusticness to it. Um, and, and it's not lost on me. Like I'll always preface it. If I'm feeding someone out there, I'll be like, you know, just please take in mind, like keep in mind, like a, what we're dealing with in terms of like, uh, uh the quality, sorry, not the quality of the meat, but like how soon we might be eating the meat after yeah. like it hasn't aged. So it might be a little bit tougher than you're used to, but, um, there's this like rusticity to, cooking in the bush it's no different than like cooking over fire it's Mm -hmm. like you know you get a bit of char maybe you burn things a little bit you don't have even heat in your pan whatever it might be but but when you cook over fire for me there's just like magic like it kind of like it it saves itself so like it doesn't have to be as precise yeah you know what i mean and so when you're cooking out there in in one of these you know on the side of the mountain i think there's something there's there's magic there it's not the best cooked dish i've ever done but because, you know, you were involved in, in taking that animal the day before or, or two days before, and because you're cooking on the side of the mountain, there's like this extra magic that goes into the food that I, I think just helps us like savor it. It's just like a, it's like a deeper, richer flavor for me. Well, and what's required of the, of the meal and the experience for to like satiate you, right, is different. It's the idea of like a, a very basic meal when you're incredibly physically exhausted and really tired yes it tastes different right it yeah. satiates you in a different way and, and your body's craving protein yeah 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 uh for sure i man i don't remember it was some sort of a like a, a sheep hunt uh it might have been like a meat eater thing or something but i remember seeing this years ago where they they killed this sheep i think in alaska and then they just like cooked the ribs uh, there in a fire and yeah. like had some little seasoning uh, that they had snuck up there and it's you know intellectually I know this like dude that's gotta be 
some boot leather up there, man. Like you just killed this <laughs> big old ram and then you cooked it over a fire, man. Like yeah. you're gnawing on that, right? Yep. Uh, but it's all, it, there really has been an appeal to it the whole time. I was like, dude, I bet that's a hell of a satisfying meal, man. Yes. Just up there. And, and you know, like, you know, when you're dealing with dark, that is, you got a fire and then it's dark on a level that two feet outside the circle of the fire is, it's, uh, it is without form, yep. right? It could be anything could be there, right? There's a, there's an immediacy to the moment, right? Like there's an immediacy to your, your being a human being and existing right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like your little realm of safety is this, this little bubble of light. Yes. Right? And you're sitting there. Uh, yeah. And I mean, even with like cool gear and Gore-Tex and, whatever man like you're you're filming stuff like there is there is a connection to like all the people that came before that have have done this shit right like totally. you got a little bit of an idea like what daniel boone felt like or yeah uh whatever uh canadian uh, heroic analog <laughs> you might have <laughs> yeah there's there's something i'm a, i'm a firm believer that like you know if we if we existed on this planet for however many years we did before this um, and you know, we lived as hunter gatherers. Like I find it hard to believe that in the, the very, very, very short time span that it's taken us to become, you know, civilized. Um, I find it hard to believe that, that we've lost, um, we've lost like the, the need for those experiences that you talk about, right? Those like super deep immersive experiences where you're like living in the moment, eating this, you know, wild animal, you know, surviving by a fire and your, your entire world's in that small little circle. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that like, we all need that. Those of us who maybe don't experience it as much, like we just haven't realized it yet, but like, there's like an innate need inside all of us to like experience and like live in the moment like that. Like it's just very rare these days. So, um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta soak it in whenever you can, man, you, uh, and look, I encourage everyone to, you can go to Sitka gear on YouTube, right. And, uh, you can see this film featuring, Connor, uh, and, and you talk about it, about like coming to, to hunting, discovering it as an adult, right? Which mm. is like, how old were you when you started hunting? You I think? think it was like 24 or something like that. Yeah. I was like, I was like 27 the first time I killed a deer, right? Really? Yeah. 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 I didn't know. No. That. Oh dude. No, man. Like <laughs> what I am now, dude, like when me and Marianne got together. Yeah. Yeah. I looked, uh, I looked very different. I was doing different stuff do you know do you know the band the bad brains no that punk band no i was gonna say there's a good reference for that but yeah man i just had like i had like three big dreadlocks you know and <laughs> just i was still like driving around in a van i just had a guitar instead of a shotgun like yeah. i do now yeah uh but yeah man i was 27 i killed that deer that's on the wall in there that's the first deer I ever killed and uh yeah, just kind of like made a made a hard turn in my life, and yeah, and but yeah, man, it was uh, it was immediately resonant with me. Yeah, right. Uh, on levels I didn't even understand, like all the waxing poetic and stuff I do in these little written diatribes or whatever, like that wasn't all fully fleshed out. I was just like, man, this feels this feels right. Yeah, you know, uh, one of my favorite expressions is uh, you don't know what you don't know. Sorry, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. Yeah. So it's like, it's very easy for someone who doesn't hunt to, to listen to you and I, or to watch a media episode and be like, that's cool. But like, I don't need to go eat an animal on the side of the mountain. 
but it's like you just don't know that you that you need that in your life right and so i i find it interesting like how many people like you and i get into hunting later in life and and like you say you take that sharp right turn and it's like we we just dive like into the deep end on it i, I find that fascinating to me that it's got such a pull to people that do you know dip their their foot in the water kind of thing man you know what it uh and I always like try and be careful, like how far I push these analogies. But I do very much feel that it's like if your only contact with sexuality, right, was like perusing the internet and you know whatever depravity involves from that, uh, and then you like had a partner and like <laughs> you know fully realized what it could be. Yeah, it's like the same thing. Yeah, you know. Like, I mean, maybe the other thing when you didn't know felt felt like it was doing it for you, man. But then it's like, yes, you touch someone's actual butt. It was it was 10,000 times better, man. A little like, bit different than touching the mouse. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, but, but I mean, it's a it's a but those are both primal like human experiences, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think of like other things in, in, in passions, pastimes in people's lives. And it's like, you know, what's the dropout rate on someone who picks up a guitar and is like, I want to learn how to play guitar. How many, how many people like never, never, you know, put it down the rest of their lives. Whereas I feel like hunting to a certain degree, like people that get into it, they're, they're kind of into it for life to a uh, varying degree. And there, there's a hook there that that's to me is super interesting. Uh, man, in that, in that film, there's some really cool images of, of you on a sailboat. Mm. And then you were saying, you were telling me earlier today that like you're, you're fixing a, to ditch the city life and you're going to like move onto a sailboat yeah. full time. Uh, I need more adventure in my life. Well, man, and that's a cool, I mean, you know, we're, t- we're talking about kind of all these like big heady, like, uh, these human ideas, right. And like being on a boat, right. And the potential for being on a boat is one of them. Right. Uh, and you're talking about like all these islands you can sail around to. Like there's just this, you should zoom in here. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it, man. Uh, so check out, zoom into Vancouver. Go right in there. That's a, an island called Vancouver Island off the coast there. So keep going in. Zoom. And zoom right in here. Okay. We're going to continue to zoom here. So we're down here with by, Van, by Vancouver, Surrey, Richmond, Parksville. Yep. And so even, I mean, you just look at, you zoom, you keep going in further here. But. Even just in this one spot, like uh, for those people who are listening, um, basically, if you were to sail up from like Baja, California, um, all the way up to Vancouver, you're basically exposed to the Pacific Ocean the entire time. And then when you get up to uh, the Pacific Northwest, the Olympic Peninsula, stuff like that, you basically round the uh, round the point and you come into uh, the inlet here and you're kind of protected behind Vancouver Island. So as a result of that, there's like thousands and thousands of, of these small little islands from you know anything from the size of this room basically that's sticking up with one tree on it to um, just these massive islands and so when it comes to coastal cruising and, and just kind of exploring um, yeah Vancouver and or I should say BC is just phenomenal and this is just a, a fraction of it I mean you go up the coast and there's these you know inlets that are you know, they take you three hours to boat up them in a, in a speedboat. And, you know, there's goats at the end of them and Roosevelt elk and black-tailed deer everywhere. It, it's a pretty wild part of Canada. Um, and it, you know, doesn't get visited that often. Lots of boaters out there, but, um, yeah, you can get to some pretty extreme places. What is, 
what's the appeal about about being on a sailboat right and like using that as a means of propulsion uh it's a good question i mean i grew up um spending like summers on a sailboat with the family and stuff like that so i did like sailing classes when i was a kid and then uh yeah we'd go out on a, a 30-foot boat and there'd be four of us basically camped out there for for three weeks cruising around and so i think um probably just how i was raised i just like the lifestyle it speaks to 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 me i guess and I think there's something, um, something that forces you to like slow down when you're sailing and you are more at the whim of nature, I guess, because so for those people who don't sail, um, you know, sailboats have a, a very small engine versus, you know, compared to the displacement of the boat. So they're not moving very fast. I'm cruising at basically five and a half, six knots on the sailboat if I'm motoring. Um, and if you're sailing and the wind's really good and it's going with you, you might get up to, you know, seven knots, seven and a half knots and you'd be, that's like flying kind of thing. Um, how, fa how fast is a knot? Do you uh, man, I, I want to say it's like one point four miles per okay, hour man. or yeah, something so like that you're talking about flying you're going like 10 12 miles an hour or something you're not not yeah yeah something like that yeah 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 yeah, yeah we're not going fast at all but but what i love about it and especially in that part of the country or, or that part of the uh the ocean is that you yeah you're just at the whim of like tides too so there's you know we don't have i don't have the ability to just like overcome nature and say hey i want to go from here to there and i'm going to do it like in this amount of time and i could just go like uh if you're out there in the winter and there's a uh a bit of a storm or there's a uh, certain wind going a certain way it's going against you you know you can't sail directly into that um you know you got tides that are fighting against you or going with you you have passes that you have to go through at a certain slack tide so i like the fact that we're not a i'm not able to uh manipulate the environment out there i have to kind of work with it uh whether that's wind or tide so yeah is that a uh this is just like a procedural question but so how does something like if you're living on a boat like that yeah uh i mean are you i mean you would you do you have i guess you don't have to have a a port right like you don't have to have a standard port so i mean are you are you like really as free as that sounds like, man, you don't know anybody, anything. You don't have to pay anybody anything. You're just out there <laughs> stop and get a bag of flour and catch a, catch a fish. And uh, how does that work? I, I wish it, it's not quite that romantic. I mean, I'm still going to be working next year. So, uh, I still need to be able to, uh, take the boat and leave it somewhere and go fly and, and do a bunch of hunts and mm -hmm. document them and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, not quite that that uh, free. Uh, I'm going to keep a slip at a marina um, that's close to the family cabin there. And uh, I'll use that kind of as a base when I have to go fly somewhere. And then, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and incorporate my work into the sailboat as much as I can. And, um, you know, lots of opportunity to hunt off the coast there. So, uh, is, it, is the plan to stay, stay up there? I mean, do you have like aspirations to, to sail the... Sail the globe or sail the ocean blue. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'd love to. Yeah, unfortunately, the boat that uh, I'm going to be using it's not quite set up for that. Um, it's not that big of a boat. It's 35 feet, but it doesn't displace very much. There's not very much like room inside the boat. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's got everything I need. So it's more of a coastal cruiser. So the plan is, um, yeah, I'll work around the coast, around Vancouver Island and stuff like that. And then I'd like to go up to uh, Haida Gwaii for the summer, which is off your screen, up to the left there. It's this group of islands. Keep going, yeah. 
So go for the Okay, yeah. Wow, yeah, man. There that's you go. far up there. Yeah. So that's Haida Gwaii and it's an archipelago. I think there's like 150 islands or something like that. And um, it sits anywhere. It's probably like 60 miles offshore off the mainland. So it kind of sits out in the middle of the Pacific there a bit. And uh, it's just a wild wild place i have a really hard time describing it i always tell people it's just like there's a bit of magic there it almost looks like the alpines across between new zealand and hawaii and it's just teeming with food i mean there's um some of the best salmon fishing in bc can be found up there you got tons of bottom fish you got crab you got uh, prawns uh berries everywhere there's mushrooms you got um you know sea urchin and uh sea cucumbers and uh you name it i mean it's just teeming with food so it's a, a pretty cool place to hang out so that's the plan to go up there for the summer for a little bit dude that's really cool yeah that's uh it's like a much more romantic van. <laughs> it's very similar to your van, yeah. I mean, you're just kind of uh, uh, self-sufficient, and you can kind of go wherever the wind takes you, I guess. That dude, that's that's cool, man. Uh, that's it's good to know that there's, you know, that there's there's opportunity for that kind of lifestyle still, right? Like, uh, hmm. And it's not just a reaction, you know, like, so, you know, you're a single gentleman, right? Like, you see, I'm about to, my wife is a week overdue right now. Yeah, so. ready to burst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we're, I'm about to have three kids, and, like, there's a rootedness that I, that you know, is uh, needed for my existence that isn't necessarily for yours. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I want, I don't want everyone to, to go work in a building, right? Like, I want... I want there to be a, a dude that's like living on a boat and <laughs> going, taking pictures of Ibex yeah. uh, and eating, eating colon uh, sausages, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's probably, I'm starting totally. to think that's probably like, if it's the biggest part, was that like the bung? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be the bung. Yeah. 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 Yep, yeah. You got it. Uh, I think the last podcast, actually, we talked about bungs. No way. Yeah. Well, the last podcast, uh, I recorded in a butcher shop. Okay. Yeah, where I was like, "Hey, man, have you got beef bungs in here, man? I'm trying to make a like a mortadella kind of deal." Uh, that's also nice. what's so cool too is that that's that's like the complete antithesis to these uh, these like Western European uh, like emulsified sausages mm. that yes, you know that like everybody loves and that I think with charcuterie is kind of like one of the uh, it's one of the ways you measure yourself against other people who do it, right? Like, can you make these like more difficult, like hot doggy, mortadella, bologna type? Yeah, that stuff's harder to make than like a bratwurst, right? Yes. Uh, but just have the complete antithesis of it, and just be like big chunks of stuff. Yeah. Uh, taking those soup shooters—that's neat, man. <laughs> uh, they just don't have the time or the equipment, right? Yeah, and 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 the experience doesn't necessitate it. Like, yes, that would be weird. Yeah, like like it, you're giving it what it needs, doing it you know more. How do you call it? Like rustically or yeah, uh, yeah. It's a good way of putting it. What? Uh, so we didn't even talk about why you were in Arkansas because I just saw on in, someone else's Instagram feed that you were gonna be like timber hunting for like the last few days. So uh, we should probably we should probably talk about like just for a minute or two like why you were. Why you're from all all the way up there, 
<laughs> where your boat's going to be up Vancouver, and you, you came to this well-known locale of, uh, I mean, you've been down by like Wabasika and stuff, Arkansas. Did you see Wabasika? No, didn't. Yeah, it was no. close to by where you were. But okay. yeah, you were you were hunting like Bayou Mita and yep. uh, like famous Arkansas timber stuff. Yeah, and and for the record, I wasn't hunting myself. Uh, I had a buddy who who I hunt, sheep hunted with story years ago, and he invited me down to come and hang out. Right, there's no no residents allowed to hunt here right now. Yeah, this is John. This is Jonathan Bradshaw, <laughs> the the sporting dog vet. Yeah. If you live in Central Arkansas, yeah, um, yeah, man. I, <laughs> I like uh, I like variety of experience and I like to see different things all the time and so he uh, he said hey do you want to come check out what it's like to you know see what I do kind of thing and I said yeah so came down to uh, see what it was all about and he showed me what it uh, what it looks like to hunt ducks on public land and showed me how challenging it was and the grind and stuff like that it's just totally different than anything we have back home yeah it's uh, I mean I've been pretty vocal about this man like I think there's something lost. Uh, I think there's, for me personally, there's something lost in the experience when there's that many other people around, mm. you know, like you, you gotta, you gotta, I mean, you gotta fight them. I mean, really, I mean, not, hopefully not physically, but <laughs> there is, there is pugilism to it, right? Like it's a yep. competition. Yep. Uh, but then also when, if you take that out, right. And you just get into the part where you're in the flooded timber, right? Yeah. It's some of the most spookily magical otherworldly stuff ever right and then when you're you've got these these animals that like exist in a totally different realm right and yeah. you like bring them all the way down <laughs> to right there in front of you man it's uh you can see why people get so fanatical about it and why they put so much energy into it yeah uh i just personally like i want more of that magic and less of you know of all the bullshit leading up to it yeah the assholes <laughs> drinking mountain dew and <laughs> driving their dad's trucks you know that's fair uh but i mean did you i mean you got to see some you got to see a couple mallards or a few birds anyway killed yep. in the timber yep yeah we did uh it was cool i i always tell people like people are like oh what's your favorite type of hunting and and i don't really have a favorite type like i kind of like them all because mm -hmm. i feel like they all scratch a different itch for me yeah so it's like man i i love doing like backcountry solo backpack trips right you go up for a week and you're looking for alpine mule deer or something like that that that's fantastic but i will just as gladly go with a buddy and we'll drive around cup locks and we'll hunt deer all day and like never get out of his truck what do you say you drive around what cup locks what's that a uh, cup lock like uh, uh forestry cup lock uh, i don't know what you guys would call them down here but uh basically just where they would go in and um they you know they put in a road into an, a section and uh, a valley or something like that and they'd go up and they'd cut off like or cut out a section right it could be it's not necessarily a, a specific shape but they just basically almost like clear cut like a small little area yeah yeah cut down everything and then they go you know another couple hundred yards and they might have another one on that road and then a couple of hundred yards and they have another one so it, sometimes you can deer hunt there and it can be pretty good especially for certain species of deer sure like that new browse coming up yep exactly yeah um but yeah I, i'm just as happy going and like chilling with a, one of my best buddies and uh you know road hunting for deer for a day as i am going backpacking for seven days it just scratches a different itch one's about like the mental challenge the physical challenge and the other is about and, and you know being independent and, and doing everything yourself and the other is about hanging out with a buddy and the camaraderie and catching up and um you know just kind of having a casual hunt so I like them all, and that's kind of the reason I wanted to come down and just check it out. It's like, to me, that's just a different type of hunting that 
that I want to experience and, and see what it's all about. And man, you guys have a wild, wild culture down here for that. Like, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy, crazy unique. It, uh, yeah, it, it, and occasionally it gets out of hand, but it is, uh, being a, and it's, I say waterfowler, but really, man, we're in Arkansas, man. So like being a duck hunter, being mm. a duck hunter in Arkansas is like, it's almost vocational, right? Like people, they, they culturally identify with it. Yes. They, uh, they attach their personalities to it. Uh, it's, it, it's something that like goes from generation to generation. And there's like people deeply identify as like an Arkansas duck hunter. Right. Right. Uh, and yeah, then, and then all the, it's, it's, you know, the stuff that I lament, like the, then you start getting like the wiener wagon and the money and all that other stuff into it. But at its core, there's something really special and magical that I think draws people to it. Mm. Uh, and, and it is, man, when that stuff goes right, when you get on a, when you're in, and to me, like I like a smaller timber hole, right? Like yeah. a smaller timber hole, man. And those birds have to really commit to get down in there, man. And then you get ten of them, or twenty of them, or every once in a while, fifty of them, or something. Yeah, man. I mean, it'll keep you going. <laughs> it'll keep you going for years. Yeah, it's something special. Uh, it's, Spe- special because it doesn't happen all the time. Is kind of my understanding. That, that's the impression I got when I was down here. Well, it, it's it, gotten it, harder, right? I, I would say, but I think special because it's. I really think that it is a an intersecting of different worlds and different planes. Like your flooded timber, true flooded timber, right? You're dealing with something that is it is terrestrial for most of the year. And then you have a you know a handful of months where you could actually ride a boat through this stuff. Like yeah. I've got places where I'll deer hunt and then like there's a hole that there's usually like a ladder stand in the hole when I'm duck hunting it mm. because some dude's deer hunting it yeah. and then the water gets up and then it, it changes. It's something else, right? Like there's, there's an ephemeral nature to it. You've got these birds that came from, you know, way up North of where you're at yep. to all the way down here, you know, relatively quickly, like they can move like a thousand miles in 24 hours. Right. Yeah. And like come down here and, it, and it's crazy to think that some, some animal that was, way up on uh, something almost like a tundra in a, another country is in down in this little 20 yard wide <laughs> hole in the woods. And that's what it really is. It's a hole. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's why it's special. I think now, you know, like there's a lot of pressure, there's competition, whatever, uh, you know, everyone's just hunting's not as good as it used to be. I mean, maybe that's the case. I don't know. Uh, but, I just think because it's this combination of like so many weird things, it's yeah. almost like an inverse. I think, I think at uh, at its best, it's like the inverse of what you're experiencing up on top of this mountain, right? Because mm. it, it's almost like the upside down version of it, right? Right. And there's something cool yes. and special to the, to that as well. Yes, it's interesting when you talk about it being like. <clears throat> two totally different worlds, right? When it's like uh, terrestrial versus like when it's you know in that flooded mm-hmm. stage, because. Uh, when you say that, I think about like, there's almost no other hunt that that's that sees that much of a swing in terms of like the, the place that you're hunting, right? It's pretty interesting. Like you can get snow and you can you can be hunting in snow versus like hunting on hard ground, but 
nothing is as drastic as what you guys have down here for those that flooded timber and you know what's crazy man is like now it's because you know like we've changed the landscape we've changed agriculture all that's i mean hell they were even they were trying to straighten the rivers back in the back in the 70s and stuff you know like, oh yeah there's a chunk of the cash river that's like straight as an arrow really uh yeah and it it got shut down because like these good old boys just kept burning down their all their excavators and stuff at night because they didn't want them to do it. <laughs> well, why were they trying to straighten it? It was the Army Corps engineers uh-huh. just, you know, because it, it made more sense, like dredge it out, straighten it, <laughs> control it. And it's like, dude, this doesn't, this needs to be as much of what it was as it can be. Yeah. But like 80% of, you know, 300 years ago, like 80% of this state went underwater every, every winter. That's wild. Yeah. So now you've got these pockets, but it used to be most of the place was yeah. like that. Uh that's really wild. Yeah, dude, it, it it is, and it goes. It it's kind of a weird thing where it kind of goes to show you that, you know, everywhere on this in this huge, weird, crazy, beautiful planet, man, there's all these weird eccentricities and like strange little things you would never know about, right? Yeah. Uh, but like the people that are there with it, it's it's, it's so central to their being. Yep. Right. Uh. So man, what's your what, what's on the to do list like moving forward, right? Like you're you're already living this pretty phenomenal life where you're like up on mountain peaks and you're in <laughs> countries that most people in Arkansas don't even know exist, uh, and you know seeing this like kind of the peak of charismatic megafauna yeah. many times a year, uh, but it sounds like you want to travel like to even more far flung places and, and really keep the, like the adventure part of it going. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite satisfied yet. Um, I've got a, I've got a, a small short list of like things that I still want to do. Um, that would be like, like bigger ticket, you know, kind of like life, uh, uh, ambitions or adventures. But, um, really I, I just want to, I want experiences, man. I want to see as much of the world as I can. And I want to like do as many cool things as I can. And I, um, I, I love cultures, but, uh, at the same time, I, I really like just wild places. So I think that's where like the hunting thing works well for me because you definitely get to go to those, those wild places. And so the more of that I can do, the better. And I, I'm not, uh, I'm pretty open. Like when it comes to, to hunting, I'll, I'll basically, um, I'll, I'll kind of try any hunt once I would say. Uh, you know, I want to experience things firsthand before I try and like make judgment about whether or not I would like it. So, um, at this point, yeah, I, I'd basically go do, do any hunt that, that someone kind of pitched to me and, um, want to go and experience it and then just decide for myself whether or not it's for me or if I don't want to do it again. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, just more adventure. <laughs> and so like right now you're working, you, you said that, you know, people can see your work, like you're doing stuff with Leupold. Uh, it's an optics company. Uh, you do stuff with Sitka. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're doing like these independent, uh, kind of documentarian style projects. Yep. Uh, where else could people like see your work or where could they kind of keep abreast of you and, and what you're up to? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm on Instagram. Uh, it's Connor Gabbett photo. Uh, I don't use it a ton. Um, I should, it's, a uh, something I'm meaning to do. So my plan is once I get on the boat here, uh, in a couple of weeks to, to ramp that up and just share more of like w- what I'm doing out there. Um, a lot of it should hopefully relate around food and, and hunting and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, just kind of cool things I see when I'm out there. So I'll be sharing more for sure. Are you, uh, I mean, do you have, do you have like aspirations of 
of uh, doing a cookbook or like more long form kind of written content, anything like that? I do a bit uh, of written stuff. Uh, I've written a couple articles for Sitka. I've done a, a collaborated with a couple of people on a cookbook for wilderness athlete. And then I did a bunch of, uh, I think the last three years I did a, um, a series for Leupold where we, I just dove in and we made all sorts of different wild game, uh, recipes. And so you can find recipes and videos and stuff like that. It's all on the Leupold website there. But, um, yeah, I'm not tied to a certain idea of like a cookbook or, um, any other kind of styles. I guess what excites me the most is, um, trying to share my passion for food with people because I think that there's some, you know, there's, there's so many possibilities and it's such a magic way of interact. Like, it's something that we can all appreciate. And so anytime that I can inspire someone to um, elevate their game or to look at food in a different way, especially like when it comes to wild food, that's kind of what, what blows my hair back. So um, yeah, whatever I can do to kind of inspire people to try new things with their, their wild game or to uh, perceive it in a different way, um, to share it with, with uh, especially non-hunters, that to me is like super, super exciting. Um, Did you get to do any... You get to do any duck cooking this past few days? I, I didn't. No, no, not at all. Unfortunately, we weren't uh, weren't that successful. <laughs> that stinks, man. Yeah, uh, I, I do have a question though about ducks up, and cooking for you. Um, you probably hunt ducks more than anybody I know, and so and and cook them. I've always heard about this idea of like wild foie gras, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of for people who don't know, foie gras is this um, traditional kind of like French method of basically force feeding a duck. And it doesn't take very long, but they force feed it corn. Um, it sounds really bad. And I think some people view it as being pretty bad. But um, essentially what it does is it engorges the liver. So the liver turns from, you know, this this purplish kind of soft, uh, uh, shiny liver. And it turns into this, in, in a commercially raised duck, it can be like a two-pound chunk of almost pure fat. And it's gnarly, man. Yeah, yeah it, it's quite gnarly. Uh, but it's a delicacy in a lot of cuisines. And um, I've cooked a, a bunch over the years. And I didn't realize that that this happens, some people say, naturally in the wild. So the idea is that uh, specifically ducks from Europe, when they were traveling and they'd be going down to like Africa, uh, their last stop before uh, leaving Europe, that they sometimes they'd be out there in Spain and Portugal, Italy, and they're gorging themselves for like 24 hours straight on whatever mm-hmm. food they're eating, and that they would get kind of like a natural foie gras liver before they would start flying and do like that big trip over the Mediterranean. But have you ever seen it like that? You ever seen a liver that looked like like foie gras esque? No. Uh, so a couple things on that. So. I don't really see very many like real fat birds down okay. here. And I think it's because I'm at the bottom of a flyway. Gotcha. Uh, that doesn't quite explain it to me though, because I mean, there's like early season, I mean, you got birds that have been sitting around for three, four weeks, like just eating. Right. Uh, do you know who uh, Hank Shaw is? Yeah. It's like for sure. gather cook, right? Yep. So Hank hunts, uh, Hank lives in like Sacramento and he hunts around there, man. And those birds he kills are stupid fat, mm. like fat, 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 fat. Like this dude can like render over a gallon of just duck fat a year off of the birds he's killing. Right. Wow. Uh, and he has said that 
you know, occasionally he will find birds like that. Now it is never going to be on the scale of like a moulard, right? Yes. Like, yeah. Uh, maple. What is that? Like Maple Leaf Farms, I think, sells all those ducks. Uh, it'll never be like that. But he says that he has, uh, on occasion, gotten a hold of a duck that uh, that is not just like. It, know, it's the, not the usual ever. Yeah, man. Like yeah, there, there's something else to it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, I don't ever really get that. Like for me, man. If I get a bird that, like, when I pluck it, like, it's the skin looks kind of yellow because there's enough fat under it. And, you know, like, then down by its ass when you're cleaning it, man, it'll have some fat in there. Like, that's yep. pretty good. But, man, I've heard, uh, you know, these snow geese, folks kind of on that return flight, that conservation hunt, people will – people kind of start chasing them down here in Arkansas, right? So they're like chasing them here, follow them up to Missouri, Kansas. And then, you know, there's dudes that'll hunt them all the way till May. You know, they say they chase them to the boreal forest line, right? They're in Canada, right? Yeah. And from what I've heard, man, those, those, uh, those snow geese, when they're like hitting the tree line, like when they're, when you shoot them and they hit the ground, they just split open. They're so fat. Really? Yeah. So, wow. that, I mean, that might be something <laughs> to get on like in May. Yeah. Uh, to try that out. Cause I think you'd be, you'd have a way higher, cause you know, you're dealing with birds that are about to drop eggs and, yep. you know, try and be in that, that state. So I think that, I think you'd have way more potential for that. But, uh, interesting. Man, I'll tell you what, dude, that, uh, I remember the first time I had foie gras, man, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it it doesn't really, it doesn't taste like marrow, but it, it's still kind of that meat butter kind of deal. Yeah, it's a good and, way to describe uh, it. I mean, shit, dude, you know, like foie gras on a burger is baller, dude. Like, it's real good. And, you know, man, it's fatty, it's buttery, it's yeah. Hitting all that stuff, and there's just like that little bit of funk to it too. It's sure. it's not unapproachable, right? It's it's, no. it's very very mild. Yeah, much more bird livers are much more mild than like even a pig liver, right? Uh, and and then I don't know, man. Maybe like the more stomachs a critter gets, like the more assertive their liver gets. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't. You know, are you familiar with this like bird flu thing that's happening right now? Yeah, yeah, but bad year for it. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't know that like eating uh, filtering organs is uh, I don't know if it's like more problematic this year or not. Mm. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't know, man, I'm still eating them, I guess. Uh, but they're like, I'm also like, I'm not eating rare livers either. Like yeah. they're, they're getting pretty thoroughly cooked. Yeah. That's a long, long answer, but yeah, I never get, I never get anything like that. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. That's but, interesting about the the snow geese, though. Yeah, man, I'd like, dude, I'd love to. Uh, it would be amazing, and I I have heard of, I've heard of people that do it in a more like they've got migrating birds, and then they'll they'll just like put a bunch of like olives and uh, you know nuts and shit out for these birds, and they try and facilitate like a bit of a natural foie gras. I, I've heard of that even. Huh. Uh, but no, down like like I said, down here, man, I'm never really dealing with just stupid fat, like half inch fat birds. Yeah. I feel like you'd have to get it because also too, I don't think they could get, I don't think their liver could get like that in a 24 hour period. I mean, when they're when they're breeding birds for it, yeah, I mean, they're sticking that funnel in their mouth for like a month, I think, to 
Yeah, for for whatever the ten seconds at a time yeah, every yeah, day yeah. or something. Like that. that that was my understanding too. The where I'd heard that that kind of natural foie gras idea was um, a producer in I think it was pretty sure it was Spain who had um, who had ducks and like when their natural cycle would kick in and they'd want to like. I'm pretty sure they were domestic ducks, but when their natural cycle would kick in and they want to like, all of a sudden when he watched them gorge themselves for 24 hours straight, he's like, okay, it's time. They would want to fly south right now and he would go and kill them. Now, this is a long time ago. This is like an article I read in a, in a cookie magazine, but uh, yeah, so I just didn't know. I mean, that would make sense too because, you you know, you're di- and, and different species of ducks kind of react differently to or seem to have a different relationship with like photoreceptors and how that motivates their migration. Right. Mm. Uh, so they're like responding to like light levels during the day yep. and all that shit. Uh, but then also, I mean, Spain, right? Like you're dealing with people that like, they have a culinary history of this kind of, uh, this, uh, this fattening, this gorging of animals to like produce like really, uh, you know, really desirable, uh, you know, like uh, meat products, right? Like, so yeah. like Iberico would be like the big thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, you're kind of dealing with like an Iberico. Yep. And you know, th- that's another thing too, man, is that you would, God, I got to talk to a biologist about this because you would think, you know, what's, what, what has drawn birds, migrating birds to Arkansas throughout history has been the availability of this calorically dense uh, resource like acorns yep. that gets floated up. Yep. Like they wouldn't have access to it normally, but then it gets put in this aquatic environment. They fatten it up, blah, blah, blah. Right. They're eating the same thing. Those pigs, those Iberico pigs are eating, man. Yep. You, you would think you'd end up with a bunch of it, but you'd think so. It, and it might also be now that I think of it, it might also be the fact that like the article I was reading about, what they're talking about literally flying over, the Mediterranean, right? And so, you know, with the ducks down here, I guess if they're if they're just puddle jumping their way down, oh, they but, can stop whenever. Yeah, yeah, they can stop whenever, and so they don't really have to like maybe uh, preload for like a one big massive trip over the ocean. So maybe that's why that makes you sense, don't man. see it as much over here. I don't know, but um, yeah, there, there was a fascinating. Well, I found it fascinating. Uh, some people might not, but uh, uh, a Vice um, short film. It was like six or seven minutes long, I think. And it was in the Faroe Islands, which is in the North Atlantic. Yeah. And very, very rugged, wild place. Uh, and there's a certain time of year, and I, I want to say it was in the spring, and I, I can't remember the name of the bird, but there was a seabird. And uh, Yeah, yeah, would, yeah. I know what you're talking about. They, they go around, they like net them out of the... You've seen this. Yeah, and they're yeah. fat. They, they get... Uh, it's like when they 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 just quite haven't learned how to fly right that's and right they're super fat and they're super fat yeah yeah and so, and so they can't get away so these guys are out in these boats and literally have these big long basically fishing nets with like a 10 15 foot pole mm-hmm. and they're like running up on them with the power boat and they're like scooping up these birds and the bird's natural defense mechanism is to puke on the guys yeah yeah, yeah. but then uh they take them back and they show them how they process them and it was pretty interesting you know they're, they're singeing all the, the pin feathers off and stuff and yeah they're they're Super plump little birds. And I ate that. them really. Okay, so I totally have seen this. Yeah. And I remember specifically they ate them and was just like boiled potatoes. Yes. And do you remember where they he cooked, or uh, grew the potatoes? It was like up on the top of the mountain behind his house. Like it wasn't on his like his backyard. I'm pretty sure he's like, oh, I planted some potatoes like up the hill, and he just like walks up the hill and he like mm. picked up a bunch of wild or not wild, but like like you know 
potatoes he planted and basically just left up at the top of the hill. Man, I'm I don't remember that part. I'm gonna have to go back and watch this thing. And, and dude, I'm te- those birds. This is funny because I thought about this then. They looked so sumptuous, right? They were little fat buggers, oh, yeah. right? But then I was thinking that I, there's got to be like a real kind of minerality to them, right? Because I mean these are these are uh, these were like fish eating birds, right? I'm yep. pretty sure. So, yep. uh, or you know, like those cats. You ever seen those cats when they catch uh, those puffins? You seen like in Greenland, they'll be like on the side of these bluffs, yes, on and the cliffs, and yeah, stuff. and they'll have yep. like those same kind of long deals. That's right. And I bet it's a similar thing. I bet that's got to be a assertive tasting bird, man. <laughs> I would imagine, like eating a penguin. I bet is. <laughs> have you ever eaten a seal or a whale or anything? Uh, can't say I have. No, no. I again, I'd like to try. Yeah, I've talked. I've I, talked to people that have, man, and yeah. that's kind of how they describe that. Like, I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of eating a seal. Yeah, totally. That's, I mean, it was such a staple, right, for so long, for so many people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm super curious to try it. And it's also like there's just something weird about a seal because it's <laughs> like it's this sea mammal, you know, it's kind of exists in these two realms. Like I'm real big on the, the you know, whatever. the. I just like uh, – I like things that are kind of diametrically opposed working with each other, right? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, but man, you've left me with more questions uh, <laughs> here at the end. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, man, I'm gonna look at, I'm gonna look into why we don't have Iberico fatty mallards here in, uh, in Arkansas because I think we should. Yeah, but uh, I'm curious to know. Connor Gabbett, not Abbott. Uh, Connor Gabbett, man, thanks very much, dude, and thanks for coming over and uh, taking the time, like here at the end of your trip, to come over and have some dinner and talk man dude thank you thanks so much for having me that was great great dinner too oh hey thanks a lot man yeah all right uh and folks thanks for listening we'll see you next time hey thank you so much for listening all the way through to this episode of the black duck revival podcast Uh, i'm still on baby watch 2022 hopefully in the next few days i am a father of three as opposed to a father of just two right now but uh until that time you can follow me on instagram and even after you can follow me on instagram and that handle is black duck revival you can go to the website which is blackduckrevival.com recipes articles etc etc if you want to go over to sitkagear.com and to the experiences tab i've got a ton of articles and recipes over there Stuff about waterfowling, turkey hunting, elk hunting, uh, all sorts of stuff. So you can check that out there as well. And hey, man, I just actually got a, I got an email from somebody about one, a specific podcast episode. And uh, dude, I so appreciate that, you know, that folks are taking the time to, to reach out and connect about, you know, specific episodes or, or guests that they liked. So please keep that up. I'll be responding uh, in a timely manner here in the next day or so. But uh, everybody, so appreciate the support. If you have not left a positive review over on Apple or Spotify, please take a minute to do so. Written, a uh, little written soliloquy works wonders for the algorithm. Uh, but just let folks know about the podcast. Tell a friend, tell an acquaintance, tell an enemy, and we will see you next time.